Welcome to the Good Shepherd in the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child through the method of catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I'm your host, Carrie Mecki Losanu. Today, I have Annette Witte on the podcast, and we are going to talk about Romano Gardini, who is another one of those theological influences on our work in the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. Annette is a catechist and a formation leader from Arizona, and she has gone through the master's program, the MAPS program, which is the Masters in Pastoral Studies with an emphasis in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, which is from Aquinas Institute. And it was there that she discovered Gardini and his beautiful theological work. So she's going to talk to us about him today and how his theology has directly affected our work in the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I hope you enjoy. Annette, welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. Thanks, Carrie. It's so good to be here finally. <laughs> I know. It's so great. We we have been working for a few months to try and get this interview going. So I'm glad that it has all lined up to where we are here talking now. Me too. Annette, would you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got involved in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd? Mm-hmm. Well, it all began back. <laughs> I had five. We have five children and they all attended a Montessori school. And one day, one of the mothers of my second from the youngest came up to me and told me that she was going to this formation course um, called Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. And the more she talked about it, the more I just was like, I I felt this wholeness beginning to form Mm. inside of me. Like this was the last piece of the puzzle, the jigsaw puzzle that was the child in Montessori's vision. So I was very intrigued. I was not in a position myself to take formation, but we kept in touch. And when she opened her atrium, my two youngest were old enough to attend and they did. And it just, that was the start of my journey. Some years later in my parish, there were seven of us who were invited to take formation together at the same time, which was mm-hmm. just an awesome uh, way to go about it. And we all had a different focus. One was really interested in doing it with sacramental prep. Some, one of them wanted to get it into the schools. The others were, you know, the religious ed evenings um, and to keep it going. I was the material maker because I have this art degree, that was my focus, that was my desire, and that's, when I took formation, my eyes were more on what the materials were to be and how they would speak to the children. Mm -hmm. I never intended to be a catechist, which is pretty funny (laughs) when you see where I'm at right now. Uh, But I was invited to uh, an evening with the level one atrium, just for a year. And I think back to those words of Sophia, you know, we just this, okay, I'll do these, these few children, get them ready for their sacraments. And then that's it. You know, I'll be all done. Well, that's kind of how I felt. Well, then our, our level two catechist uh, took a year sabbatical. Could I do that? And because I had taken original formation with material making in mind, I went back and took formation again, really looking at the presentations, really learning about the child. So I've, I've taken a couple at each level. 
I took level three also really just for material making. But at one point, our formation leader in Grand Rapids, Michigan moved. And then we were out of uh, without a formation leader. So there was this sort of buzz going around in our CGS community. Um, you know, who can we get to, to be a formation leader? And we had a little meeting and we're all sitting around the table and all of a sudden all eyes turned to me. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> uh, I, I, however, I have to say that I was feeling that draw as well, that call from the spirit to, to that maybe I was the one that was going to step into this role. So I did say yes, and that I started on that journey. And shortly afterwards, um, Ann Garrido had approached, well, actually, I went to a formation leader conference, and mm -hmm. Ann Garrido was there pitching the MAPS course. And somehow, again, that Holy Spirit call was coming to me loud and clear. And the funny thing, well, it's not funny, but the interesting thing was that I started my first formation course and the MAPS course the same exact month, the same exact year. I really have no idea how I got, how I did all of that, except through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, because yeah. both of them are such large chunks of work. And, and of course, they're simpatical. So I bet in some ways, though, it was like you were growing right alongside all of the people in formation with you. Yes. Y'all in some yes. way were parallel growing next to each other. For any of our listeners who are not familiar oh, with what the MAPS course is, it is a master's in pastoral ministry with an emphasis in catechesis of the Good Shepherd. It's from Aquinas Institute in St. Louis. It's a really neat program. You do a three-year cohort. Um, I think that they just started one a year ago. So the next cohort will be in two years. It starts in January. So two years from this January, I believe, is I could be a year off on that, but that's yeah, and, about and right. And I, I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's one of those things that you're like, okay, level one formation. Ooh, I love this. Level two formation. Ooh, I love this. Level three formation. Ooh, I love yes. this. Now yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, you go yeah. get a master's in catechesis of the Good Shepherd. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, and I was very fortunate that I have a, my husband was very supportive all the way. You know, so so I'm level one and two formation leader, and he he says to me the other day, or well, it wasn't the other day, but he says, you know, you should talk to Ann Garrido about how you become a level three formation leader. And I said, <laughs> what? I no, no, I'm good right now. Let me, you know. So he's he's very supportive, and he's also extremely into it. You know, he loves yes. to tell people about what we do, and uh, you know, it's yeah. his way of evangelizing. So. Yeah, you know you've hit that level when your when your spouse is starting to promote the program and they've never even oh. done formation. So right, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of funny, isn't it? So then, was it in your master's courses that you encountered Romano Gardini? Yes. So in the master's course, not only do we take a segment of um, theology, we also had um, a parallel discussion about one of the usually a theologian, um, a religious writer, a priest, a saint, who influenced Sophia and our work. And so mm -hmm. I believe it was when we did the sacraments that Romano Guardini was our, our guide, our spiritual guide. 
And as I read him, I thought, because he is so much into the liturgy and liturgical reform, as we will hear, I thought, you know, I really should see if I can make it to Mass more often than just Sundays. Mm. And at that point, my all my children were out of the home. They were all in college or in their careers. And I was able to attend daily Mass. And in Grand Rapids, we had so many options, so many. There were morning Masses, noon Masses, evening Masses, several morning Masses. So there was really no excuse. Mm -hmm. um, and the more I went to Mass, the deeper everything became for me, my faith, my work in catechesis, my work on in my MAPS course. It was really a beautiful time for me and uh, has stuck with me. Now I'm in Arizona and not Michigan, and the choices are fewer for daily Mass, or at least I haven't explored all of them. But That's neat that your encounter with him really inspired you in that way, and then how you saw the ripple effects in all those areas of your life. That's, Absolutely. That's really neat. Yeah. So then, Annette, would you tell us who is Romano Gardini? Well, I'll begin with when he was born, um, 1885, and and I should have written down when Maria Montessori was born. But he was he was a colleague. I mean, he, they lived peers. Let's say they lived a, about the same time. He was born in Verona, Italy. But when he was one, his family moved to Germany, and basically he was German at heart. They spoke Italian at home, but he learned German in school. And in 1911, uh, so how old was he then? Probably he was in his mid-20s. Uh, he became a German citizen, much to the dismay, I think, of his family, but he really was German. And all of his work he, d he, he did in Germany. He was mostly, he was a professor and a priest. And I have a list of what others have said about him. Uh, he was more of a pastoral priest and sort of a non-theologian theologian, if that makes sense. He's been called a Renaissance man, a precursor of Vatican II, a lighthouse in a darkening world, a prophet of things to come, a humanistic scholar in the best sense of the word. They said that once he turned away from scholastic theology, he began to develop his own theology, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. He was less about the study of theology and more about the understanding and experience of Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. He was also one of the first German-speaking contributors to this aggiornamento that was going on in the church, which was the spirit of Vatican II, the update of the church into the, into the world, into the modern world. He was a seeker of wisdom. He was most intent on helping people understand, and this is a quote, their original and authentic relationship to God as it is lived and not merely talked about. Right. So he was one who really wanted to bring the church into an understanding of why. Why do we worship this way? Not the hows, not the rubrics of mass, but the why. And helping people to understand those things. He himself was influenced by Maria Montessori. And he quotes her in 
his uh, the introduction to his little tiny book called Sacred Signs. And he talked about how really the people closest to children, the mothers, would be the, the best people to train their children in what was happening at church. Also teachers, that they could help them experience and celebrate Sundays. And he saw Maria Montessori sort of bring those together as well. He wrote a short article by Maria Montessori, whose work in education is so significant, made me feel when I read it that here was both the fulfillment of these ideas and their promise for the future. These ideas that parents and teachers can bring their children along. Her method is to teach by actual doing. In one of her schools, the children take care of a vineyard and a wheat field. They gather the grapes, sow and harvest the grain, and as far as they can technically manage it, make, according to the rules of the church, wine and bread, and carry them as their gifts to the altar. This kind of learning together with the right kind of instruction is liturgical education, for the approach to the liturgy is not being told about it, but by taking part in it. Mm. And we see that in our in the work that we do. We don't yeah. just tell children about Mass. We help them learn about it by giving them presentations that allow them to experience the doing of the gestures. Right. Help them to live it. Yes. To understand that why that he was talking about. I love it. I think that we can take this so for granted because and we have to remember that he was saying this about a hundred years ago when saying something like mothers should be teaching their children about the faith. They are, you know, they're most attuned with the children and what their needs are. Mm -hmm. That's very forward thinking for a hundred years ago. Very Um, When the faith was only being taught by um, ordained people at that time who were very disconnected, or at least for the most part, disconnected from who the child is. So, man, that's that's very forward thinking of him. Yeah. He was also challenging the clergy themselves to really understand their relationship to what it was they were doing, to get their heads maybe out of the, the rubrics of the Mass and more into the spirit of the liturgy, which is the name of one of his books, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a precursor, they say, of that to Vatican II, but he lived it with his life. He lived mm-hmm. these changes that he was proposing. For instance, he was involved in a movement called the Quickborn movement, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. there were two ways that it was described. The fountain of youth or the wellspring of life. Mm. So in the early 20s, this he was um, the head of this quick born movement, actually. And what he did was he was working with young people, he encouraged the development of their whole person. So they went to plays and they, they were involved with music and dance and culture. And the one thing that the seat of the Quickborn movement was in a place called Berg Rothenfels, which actually means Rothenfels Castle in Germany. And there was a little chapel called St. Benedict's Chapel. And to get into it, you had to kind of squat down. And it was as if you were going into a 
the catacombs. It was a dark, low-ceilinged um, room. And the altar was in the center. And the students and people would gather around. And depending how many were there, would be shoulder to shoulder. And he was encouraged. It wasn't his idea, but somebody had encouraged him to face the people when he was um, preparing the Eucharist. And he said the minute he did that, he just felt this incredible connection to the people. Mm. And the other thing that they did in during the masses is that they sang songs in German in the vernacular, which was, again, we're, this is before Vatican II, right. 1920s. Um, he also reintroduced, um, it's called Misa Recitata, which is uh, an exchange between the priest and the congregation, which is what we do. And like you said, we've we take these things for granted now, but at right. one time that was not done. People used to pray their rosaries during mass. Right. You know, and there was a time they didn't even go to communion because, except maybe once a year, because the focus was on being totally without sin and how can you be totally without sin unless you go to uh, Eucharist immediately after confession so uh, and this was also during a time when the church was trying to bring people more at a younger age into receiving the, the Eucharist and their sacraments right you can see in so much of this how he really believed in understanding in with your whole yeah. being what you are doing rather than just going through the motions rather than I'm right. physically at mass but I'm mentally and spiritually not at mass he wanted right. a whole person a whole engagement yes. of himself and those that participated with him and that's so beautiful and you see that also in what Sophia talks about with like formulaism verse um mm -hmm. like the parable method like like I don't want you to just be able to regurgitate the information I want you right. to be able to to really bring it into your being. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. In which, again, very forward thinking. Nobody was thinking yes. like this 100 years ago. Right. Yeah. And, and he, was, um, he was able to talk in a way that really drew people. In fact, he used to pack the lecture halls when he would lecture because mm -hmm. he was really striking a chord in these people that were hungry for something more. Mm-hmm. And most of his, or a lot of his lectures then became his written work, his books. So he wrote like 63 books and over 100 articles. Isn't that amazing? Like, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I can't <laughs> Granted, amazing. I know that some of those were like he had his talks he did for school and stuff. And so you know yes. you're already writing it for that. You might as well turn it into a book. But still, right. that is a lot of writing. Yes, that is That's a lot of impressive. writing. impressive. It's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of yeah. um, recollecting. And that is a word that he used a lot. Recollection is maybe to us what we would call pondering, mm -hmm. you know. So to really think about, again, to think about what it is you are doing. Think about the liturgy and what you are entering into. Um, he wrote a whole book called Meditations Before Mass where he breaks down what is going to happen and, and how to prepare ourselves. And he talks about being really present, just alert, attentive, present, have a composure about you in order to receive 
what it is we're going to hear at Mass. Mm -hmm. So, Annette, in your opinion, what of Romano Gardini's theology do you feel like had the biggest influence on the church and also in our work in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think this, first of all, this idea of recollection and pondering. He also, Romano Gardini worked with the youth, and it wasn't that he lectured to them or at them. He he worked alongside them and they broke down scripture together and he listened to what they had to say, which is what we do in catechesis mm -hmm. when we give presentations to children. We listen to the scriptures together. We ponder together. We listen to what children say, how they respond. And to me, that's one of the greatest gifts. And I think that Sophia felt that very same thing when she broke open scripture with those first children that she worked with. She wasn't giving them the catechism, you know, from a book. She was exploring God's message to us. And, and she even said it was their joy that kept her going. So... Um, I think that is a really, really huge thing. Romano Guardini also believed in the the importance of community and not just this individual faith journey, that we are all part of the body of Christ. And so when we're in the atrium, we are also a community. Mm -hmm. Fuller participation in the liturgy, we always write that down as an indirect aim in many of our liturgical album pages. Mm -hmm. And that is really by teaching the gestures and their meanings, which is what he did, which is what we do. We are inviting the children into fuller participation in the liturgy. We help them really to understand the meaning of signs and gestures. And when I say children too, I mean, even our course participants, mm -hmm come away from presentations of the gestures and say, I've never heard it explained that way. Right. I think it's one of those things that we just, we take for granted so much yes. in our faith, like the sign of the cross. We've done it a million yeah. times in our life. Yes. We start to stop thinking about it. And yes. what we do in Good Shepherd, which you can see the roots in Gardini, is it mm -hmm. isolates it and we get to just kind of sit with it for a little bit that makes you go, mm. oh my gosh, I am marking myself. Yes. I am marking my body. Absolutely. In a yes. very deep way. Beautiful. His writing on the sign of the cross, I believe, has been written and published in many books. But this is directly from his first book, Sacred Signs. I love how he says, he's, first he says, let's make a real sign of the cross instead of a small cramped gesture <laughs> that gives no notion of its meaning. Mm -hmm. Let us make a large unhurried sign from forehead to breast, from shoulder to shoulder, consciously feeling how it includes the whole of us, our thoughts, our attitudes, our body, our soul, every part of us at once, how it consecrates and sanctifies us. Mm -hmm. I wrote down next to that in Sacred yeah. Signs that this needs to be in my album page for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those yeah. paragraphs about the sign of the cross needs to be in my sign of the cross album page. Yes.
Yeah, and I love how he also goes on to say, when we make the sign of the cross, we do it before we pray to collect and compose ourselves, to fix mm -hmm. our minds and hearts and wills upon God. And then we make it when we finish praying in order that we may hold fast the gift we have received from God. Mm -hmm. And then in temptation to strengthen us and dangers to protect us. That simple gesture has such deep meaning if mm -hmm. we recollect, if we ponder it, and if we make it our own. If we're intentional about what we are doing and yes. why we are doing it, it allows exactly. it to go to a deeper method and deeper level. Yes, yes. Yes. And he, he also, you know, he was talking about in one of these books, there's a, when he talks about the sign of the cross, he says, it is the simplest and holiest of all signs. And to make it with an awareness of both what we are doing and with whom we are doing it is the beginning of the liturgical act. Mm. So, so I also, and, and Sophia actually in history of the kingdom of God one, she talks about how in pondering that deeper reality, she says, as for the liturgical sign, if one stops at the external reality without seeing the supernatural one hidden within, the world of liturgy would remain closed. And likewise, if one is unable to reach the mystery that the parables conceal, the spirit contained and hidden therein, then it would be completely useless, useless to read and ponder them. So, you know, we talk about the method of signs and the method of parables, and both of them are where we're hearing or seeing one thing, but we know there's a deeper reality to them. And that, I think, is another contribution that we have gleaned or we have definitely received from Romano Guardini this deep looking and theological mm -hmm. reflection, really. Mm -hmm. The other one is the level three material on virtues. I feel like that whole oh, presentation yes. is just a gift from Gardini. Definitely, yes. He has his whole book specifically just on virtues. Yes. So there's a very interesting passage in The Essential Guardini. He talks about play, the play of liturgy. And at one point he calls it kind of purposelessness, which when you first hear that, you think, well, you know, what is he talking about? But basically what he was talking about was that we should be able to enter liturgy in pure enjoyment. There's nothing that we're trying to accomplish. It's all about gift and it's all about receiving so he talked about in this liturgy and worship how we let other believers into the circle of our lives and we present ourselves with, to God with them, that sense of community. I can also see where, uh, th here's one of the quotes in, in this liturgy and worship. Um, Gordini says that our liturgy is no, no closed circle, no organization or union with its own center. Each congregation is part of a whole that far surpasses any Sunday gathering. It embraces everyone who believes in Christ in the same city, the same country, over the whole earth. And when I read that, I could not help but think of the Eucharistic presence of the Good Shepherd. Mm, yeah. You know, we, we, it goes out beyond our own little 
little gathering here. It is much bigger than that. How far does the Good Shepherd's voice reach? Exactly. And then we can think of, you know, those who have done level three and have been introduced to the memorial. Um, Mm -hmm. He talks about how those who already participate in eternal life are invoked during the prayers after the consecration. The congregation stretches not only over the whole earth, but also far beyond the borders of death about those gathered around the altar, Mm. the horizons of time and space roll back, revealing as the real sustaining community, the whole of saved humanity. And so I picture, you know, one of those little cards in the memorial of the priest praying at the altar and the communion of saints behind him. And that Again, how far does the voice of the Good Shepherd go? Not just in our time, concretely on this earth, but also beyond death. Mm-hmm. For someone who has never read Romano Gardini, where would you suggest for them to start? What books or writings should they start with? Um, well, of course, Anne Garrido's book is a, is a yes. nice way to start. She has little little um, reflections and uh, questions for us to recollect and ponder ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, two of these other books, the, the essential Guardini and that word essential comes up so often in his writing more in the form of essence. He talks about the essence of this and that. So we, when we talk about essential, what's essential in this in this presentation. What's essential in our faith? I believe I can just hear that coming out of Guardini's mouth. So the essential Guardini, and then there's another book called Proclaiming the Sacred in a Modern World. Both books are written as reflections on his life by different people that knew and studied him. And they lift up then these different important elements of his theology. Mm-hmm. And reading them, I, I found a lot of overlap, which was very helpful. Um, and then, of course, Sacred Signs is his little tiny book that talks about the different um, elements of the Mass. So that's another one that's really good. I, and, yeah, I would say start with those. The Virtues, of course, if you are interested in um, exploring the Virtues, that's another, another one. The Meditations on the Mass would be another one. Well, Annette, before we finish, would you like to share a quote? Maybe one of your favorite quotes from Gardini? So, this comes under a chapter that is titled, Are We Capable of a Genuine Liturgical Act? Hmm. And Gardini says, The soul must learn to abandon, at least in prayer, the restlessness of purposeful activity it must learn to waste time for the sake of God and to be prepared for the sacred game with sayings and thoughts and gestures without always immediately asking why and wherefore. It must learn not to be continually yearning to do something, to tax something, to accomplish something useful, but to play the divinely ordained game of the liturgy and liberty and beautiful and holy joy before God. Mm. I just hear Good Shepherd so much in that quote. 
it's like you have to abandon any form of productivity, yes. any form of assessment, any form of control, yes. and just be and be like just yes. waste time for the sake of God. Yes. And oh. that's what we do. We we waste time for the sake of we God. Waste time. <laughs> well, waste time in quotes. It is no wasting time, you know. It, it's just, yes, as viewed by the outside world, perhaps, but we know better, you know. Um, when your three-year-old yeah. is spooning for an hour and a half every week, <laughs> we are wasting time for the sake of God. There That's is such right. abandonment happening right there where God is so present. And I love that term, holy joy before God, because that's mm. what it is, you know. Mm. I wonder if that's where Sophia named her book, Holy Joy. You, I wonder if that's where she I got it. I wondered that myself. Yeah. Um, there was something else, Carrie, before we end. Um, it's on page three of the Essential Guardini. He was talking about his role as a pastoral minister. And he said, I found myself the type of brotherly priest who does not act out of his official position, but carries the priesthood in himself as a pastoral force, who does not confront the faithful as the owner of authority, but stands next to them. He is reluctant to offer them firm results and directions, but joins them in their searching and asking in order to arrive with them at common results. It reminded me of that listening to God with children, mm -hmm. that we join them in their searching and asking. Mm. I loved that. And I wonder, you know, sometimes, like, did Sophia read that and think, oh, you know, I'm a very learned person, but I don't have all the answers. And I'm reluctant to offer this. You know, I, I would rather walk alongside the child and listen to them. Mm -hmm. So that was one. Um, there was also something else about um, how things take time and how we have to be really careful in our formation courses not to have them be trainings. And so I get really funny about that, and I always, like, make sure that people understand the idea that it is formation mm -hmm. because otherwise it becomes, okay, let's hurry up and learn this so we can implement it, as opposed to let's take our time in this retreat-like experience of formation and really understand and accept it and take it on as our own, this faith that we have. Then when we approach children and present to children, you know, we, we have a richness from which to draw. Because we cannot give what we don't have ourselves. Right. And when you have churches go, oh, man, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, that is so beautiful. That is, oh, look how cute that little atrium is. And look how wonderful everything is. Let's hurry up and get, get this. How, uh, so what? You take, we can take formation, you know, level one this summer. And then next year we can do level two. And next year three. And then by in four years we can have the whole program. And, you know, we we're reminded of that mustard seed growth. Mm -hmm. And that was also a warning that Guardini gave the church about rushing forward without understanding, um, making all these changes without really understanding. 
So I think that's an important thing that maybe we have also learned from Gordini. Yeah. I mean, you even see it in the history of the kingdom of God. God exactly. took all this time yes. with us in mind. Yes. Um, mm. Well, thank you so much, Annette. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast to dive into this really beautiful soul. I really appreciate you asking me and um, really you, diving in. We've dove in, but we're still in the pool. Right. <laughs> There's so much to to learn about him. And so I encourage people to, yeah, explore. Explore Romana Gordini. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. In our show notes, I will have some references for you of a couple different books that Annette mentioned. And I also have the book called A Year with Sophia Cavaletti by Anne Garrido. And this is the book that we've referenced a few times when we talked about Zoli and now today with Gardini. This is a really neat book that dives into the different theological influences in our work in the catechesis of the Good Shepherd. So if you haven't got a copy of this yet, you really want one because it is a very, very neat book. I'm also going to put a link in our show notes for the master's course, the MAPS course out of Aquinas Institute that we've been referencing a bunch, just in case you are wanting to look at it and read about it and pray about it and see if it's something that you're being called to. I also wanted to remind everybody that we have the audio version of the third edition of The Religious Potential of the Child by Sophia Cavaletti. We have it available through Podbeam. And so I will put some information in our show notes. I have some videos to help step-by-step you through the process of how to gain access to the audio version of Religious Potential of the Child. So you have to access it through a premium channel from the Podbean app. And it is really, really neat that we now have this treasure of a book in audio form. So if you're planning on going on a long trip, maybe over Thanksgiving or Christmas, you might want to listen to a couple chapters of our beloved book. So if you haven't yet purchased access to the book, go ahead and check out the show notes and I have step-by-step instructions on how to do that. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. If you would like to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, or if you would like to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for listening. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.